Well, thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to see that you are still around. <laughs> well, thank you for coming to this lecture, my second in the series on the theme, Can Singapore Fall? I'm gratified by the many reactions to my first lecture. Contrary to what some took away from my reference to John Glubb's age of intellect, I'm not against debate and discussion at all. For Glubb, the age of intellect's most dangerous byproduct is the birth and growth of the notion that human intellect can solve all the problems of the world, when in fact the survival of the nation really depends on its citizens. Intellectualizing is not a problem in itself, except when it stops us from taking concrete steps forward. For Singapore, the danger is if we develop a complaint and blame culture where people do not bear responsibility and we end up with a deep pessimism about Singapore's future. My preference is for us to focus on issues that involve all Singaporeans who are concerned about where our country is going. Let us reflect on what we have that should be retained, modified or abandoned, and on what we do not yet have that we should bring in. Hopefully with an understanding of our common purpose and endeavor, more Singaporeans will decide to take action individually and as a nation. This was why I accepted the fellowship it was precisely to instigate this conversation as a call to action in the service of Singapore and our fellow, and our fellow Singaporeans, those here today and future generations yet unborn. At the close of my first lecture on the accidental nation, I posed the question, where do we go from here? I had explained why Singapore was the accidental nation. We had achieved independence, which was unplanned and unexpected, but we survived and we succeeded for 50 years. Now is our future success or failure a foregone conclusion? Shall we let it be another accident depending on the natural progression of time and society? Or can we make our own future through a conscious decision to work towards a specific strategic end? I refer to the essay by John Glubb on the fate of empires. It is one way to think about the future. We may wonder whether Glubb's analysis of the rise and fall of empires holds lessons for small nations. Is the decline that he writes about inevitable and unavoidable? I don't believe so. It is complacency and inaction or ill-conceived action that would make the decline inevitable and unavoidable. So I do not mean to be pessimistic at all about Singapore or Singaporeans. Indeed, those who know me know that I am often unreasonably optimistic. In fact, I'm here to say that we can and must choose to make our future. Let's see if we can start again a new age of pioneers characterized by an extraordinary display of energy, courage, and innovation. I think it is a choice we can make instead of falling into the trap of NATO, no action, talk only. I ought to add that Glubb was not unique in his analysis of the rise and fall of nations. Going through the stages from the age of pioneers to the age of conquest to the age of commerce, to affluence, to intellect, and on to the age of decadence, and decline. In remarks that have been attributed to Alexander Titler, a Scottish advocate, judge, writer, and historian in the 18th century, he observed that great nations rise and fall. The people go from bondage 
to spiritual truth, to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back again to bondage. And a friend sent me lessons from the Ottoman, which put it even more succinctly. Hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. So that's my whole first lecture, just uh, summarized by a good friend in four sentences. Today, Singapore has reached the status of a first world economy. But what is the first world society we wish to be that would be right not just for the current generation, but also for the generations to come? This is the crucial issue here. We should think of this in two ways. First, what we would, good, would be good for the future, not simply what will be convenient or comforting for us today, but what will be good for our children, our grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, so that Singapore would still be the best place for them to be in. We will never be perfect, but we can be the place where they can make the best of their talents and abilities. And second, our thinking should be oriented towards action, to talk by way of assigning blame and passing responsibility for action to others is one way, but to talk with a view of refining ideas that lead us to taking action would be a better way. What kind of Singapore do we want in the next 10, 20, 50 or 100 years? To help us concentrate our minds, let me specifically pose a question as, what is the Singapore we would like to see if we were still alive then? when SG-100 comes around. We could take the attitude that SG-100 would happen anyway, just be patient and wait. But this could simply then be a case where to wait and see is to wait and die. So let's honor ourselves by choosing deliberately. SG-100 will be the time of the fourth generation of Singaporeans since independence in 1965. We count on generation for every 25 years. For many of you young people in the audience, it is not the generation of your children or even your grandchildren. It is the generation of your great-grandchildren. You may find it ludicrous to think of Singapore in 50 years when no one can even be clear what the future would be like in 10 years. But if we think that way, then we are thinking in a reactive mode where we need to know a situation before we can think of what to do. This is the mental posture of the hopeless and helpless. We must refuse to be that. We should be thinking of a future we can shape and create even though we may be small as a country and subject to events and developments in the world that are often beyond our control. Last November, I had the privilege of helping in a workshop of more than 60 young people in their 20s and early 30s to address the question, what kind of Singapore would you like to see in 50 years? Describe it in five phrases at most. The five phrases rule was to ensure focus so that there can be a concentration of effective effort, yet not so narrow as to force a limited view. 
The workshop divided the participants into groups of six or seven, each group discussing among themselves and finally agreeing on what they considered to be the five most important characteristics of the Singapore they wished for in 50 years. We then put all the ideas from the groups, clustering similar ideas together. We put them up. Next, we gave every participant five votes to select the five ideas that most appealed to them individually. The top five ideas the participants selected were First, gracious society, doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Second, going beyond academics to focus on character and passion. Third, active aging, to focus on the 30s and 40s physical and mental health. Now, this is terribly interesting. These are young people in their 20s and 30s, and they say when you talk active aging, Unlike most of the time, when we think of active aging, we think of the guy who is 50s, 60s, 70s and say that you better be actively aging. These people in their 20s and 30s are saying active aging means focus on the 30s and 40s. <laughs> no, it's very encouraging. It means that, you know, they think, they think clearly about the future. Point number four is to go beyond geographic advantage. Focus on innovation and e-commerce. In other words, create a future, not just talk in terms of you know, Singapore is geographically placed so well in the sea lanes from the east to the west. And next they say, we should be a more sensitive and tolerant people, focus on values. I don't know how you feel about this, but I was both encouraged and inspired. I note for you again that these were young people in their 20s and early 30s. The year before, in 2015, I had met two groups of labour movement leaders. They were mostly in their 40s and 50s. And one of the questions posed was, what kind of Singapore would you like to have in 50 years? And these were their top seven wishes. Gracious society, work-life balance, innovative, creative, smart Singapore, Singapore as an economic leader, jobs availability and security, be safe and secure, to be clean and green. I found it quite remarkable that in the small groups of Singaporeans I met in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, the top wish for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren is for Singapore to be a gracious society. Each of us can undertake our own exercise of asking ourselves what kind of Singapore we should like to see when SG100 comes along. I spent an afternoon thinking about it, so this was my list. Right? A Singapore that continues to succeed despite our smallness, racial, religious, and community synergy rather than simply harmony. How can we synergize our diversity? Third, a gracious society. Fourth, a place where children are proud of their parents, not as we see mostly today where parents are proud of their children. But if you turn it around the other way and say, can we be a place where children are proud of their parents, it brings a whole different dimension, and finally to be a place where citizens are proud of their country. Or perhaps all of us should spend some time in groups to think over SG100 and what we can and should do to influence the outcome. Let me explore further this wish for a gracious society. Perhaps the more colloquial term is kampung spirit, if we think of it as something that we perhaps once had and have since mostly lost. I have a friend in Penang who remarked to me, you guys in Singapore talk about kampung spirit. Do you know what it means? He said, during Chinese New Year, 
My father gives out ang pao's to his grandchildren who all line up eagerly to receive their yearly collection. And many children in the neighborhood, including the Malay and Indian children, would line up also and duly get their ang pao's. Would Singaporeans who want the kampong spirit do likewise? That's from my friend Ibenang. In our busy city life, the kampong spirit is also in a Malay's motorcyclist who stops in the rain to check up on you when your car has stalled by the roadside or to help clear the traffic for an ambulance during lunch hour. So there are still instances of this. Indeed, they are often remarked upon precisely because we do not yet have a deep culture of graciousness so that each of these incidents become worthy news in itself. Indeed, some of us might leave our home each morning and wonder, how come my neighbor doesn't appear to care about me and my family? We can be sure our neighbors are asking the same question about us. Who is going to start this process of care and concern for our neighbor? To get some sense of Singaporeans and their idea of the kampung spirit, let me refer you to a survey of national values that was conducted from March to June 2015 by A Advantage Consulting, a consulting firm in Singapore together with the Barrett Value Center of the UK. Unfortunately, the 2015 survey is the latest that we have in their series because they normally do it only once every three years. What the survey involved was to use an international survey instrument which has been applied in many countries around the world. Respondents are shown a list of values and behaviours and they are asked to pick from the list values that they consider the most important for themselves personally. Then, from the same list, they are asked to pick the values and behaviours they see in others around them. And finally, from the same list, they are asked to pick what they desire for the future. The top 10 values and behaviours the respondents in Singapore picked as representing what they considered to be the most important for themselves personally were, in order of priority as you can see, family, responsibility, friendship, happiness, health, caring, honesty, compassion, positive attitude and respect. It is of course a highly commendable list and we all should be proud of it. Of the 10 items, I would say only one clearly involves the government, namely health, which perhaps is something at like 50% personal responsibility and 50% government responsibility. All the others involve personal behaviour. Next, bearing in mind that the respondents were choosing items from the same list, the top 10 values and behaviours they saw in the others around them were in descending order. You can see, Kiasu competitive, materialistic, self-centered, kiasi, blame, security, education opportunities, effective health care, and peace. So you have to see the first list, which is they describing what is important for themselves, and then the second list, which is they describing how others are actually behaving. I grant that the last four items, security, education opportunities, effective health care, and peace, are principally the responsibility of the government. But the first six items, kiasu, competitive, materialistic, self-centered, kiasi, and blame, reflect the life attitudes of individuals. Well, before exploring the Singapore situation further, we should know that the corresponding lists of what the current values are like in the US and the UK, for example, come out quite differently from the Singapore list. 
though I should say the data available are a little outdated for the US and UK. So look first at the top 10 items reflecting current culture in the US in 2011. They were blame, bureaucracy, wasted resources, corruption, materialistic uncertainty about the future, conflict and aggression, crime, violence, unemployment, short-term focus. Okay, that is what they are saying um, was in the US. And for the UK, the top 10 items reflecting current culture in 2012 were bureaucracy, crime and violence, uncertainty about the future, corruption, blame, wasted resources, media influence, conflict and aggression, drugs and alcohol, apathy. So the simple list of Kiasu, competitive, materialistic, self-centered, Kiasi, blame, security, education opportunities, effective health and peace is so different and in many ways more positive than that for the US and UK. Nevertheless, the interesting question is why what is perceived in Singapore society is so different from what the survey respondents say were their personal values. Family, responsibility, friendship, happiness, health, caring, honesty, compassion, positive attitude and respect. That is what the Singaporeans say are the most important for them. So if everyone is saying that's the most important, the question is how come we're not seeing it? So if the personal values were actually lived out, we should reasonably expect that at least some of these values would be reflected in a description of current culture. But at least in 2015, not a single one of the personal values was reflected in the prevailing culture as perceived by the respondents. One explanation for the incongruence is that the list of personal values did not reflect the truth because respondents wanted to present a positive image of themselves. But there is a second fascinating explanation. Both the lists are honest and true. The most important value for the individual is family. So because my family is the most important, I would cut queues for the sake of my family. I would argue my daughter's teacher because my family is most important and so forth. So others may see my behavior as kiasu, whereas all I was doing was living out my belief that family, <laughs> my family, is most important to me. You can decide for yourself what the correct explanation is. Next we go to what they desired for the future. The top 10 items that respondents in the Singapore survey listed were affordable housing, caring for the elderly, effective health care, compassion, quality of life, caring for the disadvantaged, peace, employment opportunities, caring for the environment, concern for future generations. A cynical view would be that practically all the items are for the government to do. The future that is desired is for the government to do it all, almost. When Singapore attained internal self-government in 1959 and then independence in 1965, there were only four critical deliverables for the government, namely jobs, homes, education, and health. Jobs were created through industrialization and a supremely welcoming environment for foreign investment, spearheaded by the Economic Development Board. Homes were built by the Housing and Development Board and financed for individual ownership through the Central Provident Fund system, where many homeowners could pay off their mortgages without having to top up from their monthly income. Education, particularly to create futures for the children, was met with massive expansion of school places. 
and health was delivered with basic health care as the population was still young. But looking at the list of desires for the future, can the government really deliver on all the items listed by the survey respondents despite the best of its intentions? Desires today are a lot more varied than in the 1960s. Can the government meet them all? Is creating the society and country that Singaporeans desire something more for citizens to undertake than the government? David Halpern, in his book, The Hidden Wealth of Nations, observed, richer nations are happier than poor nations, yet decades of economic growth does not seem to have increased the happiness within them. The paradox is explained by the hidden wealth of nations. The extent to which citizens get along with others independently drives both economic growth and well-being. Richer nations are happier than poor nations, yet decades of economic growth does not seem to have increased the happiness within them. This paradox is explained by the hidden wealth of nations, the extent to which citizens get along with others independently drives both economic growth and well-being. In short, there is a critical hidden wealth of nations that lies in the quality of relationships among its citizenry. Does this premise hold for Singapore too? The CIA World, Facebook, uh, World Factbook 2017 lifts Qatar as the country with the highest GDP per capita on a purchasing power parity basis and Singapore as number five coming after Luxembourg, Macau, and Liechtenstein. I suspect Halpern would be correct that Singaporeans would not be happier even if Singapore should become the country with the highest GDP per capita in the world. It would seem that there is something instinctive when Singaporeans in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s all say that the most important characteristic of Singapore, which they would like to see in 50 years, is a gracious society, not economic success. But how practical would it be to expect such an outcome, given the survey of natural values I mentioned earlier, which found the dominant perceived cultural characteristic of Singapore to be kiasu, competitive, materialistic, self-centered, kiasi, and blame. The most critical observation we have to make about gracious society or kampung spirit is that it reflects the state of relations among individual citizens. In other words, this is not an outcome the government can produce. The government can encourage and facilitate, but gracious society is something we, the citizens, have to produce. Can we do it? Do we want to do it? Is it important enough? While the Singapore we wanted in the first 50 years may have been defined in economic terms, it is rather clear that the future Singapore we want in our next 50 years ought to be also defined in social terms without neglecting the economic wherewithal to maintain our living standards. Our practical Singaporeans might say, gracious society is nice to have, but does it have to be the top priority now? Is it really urgent? My view is that we can only get there if we think in terms of a change that happens over a generation. And because it is a long-term outcome, it requires conviction, tenacity, and action now. Even though little money will be required, the heart and the mind must want it almost as a life and death issue. 
A gracious society could be exactly the kind of antidote to the social degradation and national decay that club finds to afflict nations, both large and small, once they reach high levels of affluence. But let us first think about what a gracious society would like so that we can have a clearer idea of whether we want it and whether we can get to it. Often when people think of a gracious society, their minds imagine the displaced and the handicapped, the poor and the misfits, and how those groups of people should be taken care of. But gracious society or kampong spirit is really about the countless little interactions between neighbours and everyone else we mix with or have to work with every day of the week. It is little things that define culture and the reality of society. I know there are already many initiatives for people to help one another and be kind to one another. There have been many occasions where people reach out to help others in trouble. This gives us optimism that in a crisis, people will not simply think of themselves and their families, but will extend their hearts and hands to those around them. But what I am advocating is graciousness as a part of our character as a nation, not just episodic acts of kindness. This is culture, an integral part of our makeup as a people. I'm the founding chairman of Honor Singapore, a charity whose mission is the promotion of a culture of honor and honoring for the well-being of the nation. The impetus for founding Honor Singapore was SG50. My conviction that SG50 should not just be about celebration, but it should be a time of reflection as to how Singapore had managed to survive and succeed since independence. Honor Singapore is multiracial, multireligious in its perspective, doing what it can to enhance the well-being of the country for the benefit of all. One of our major projects is sponsoring young filmmakers to produce short films on the theme of honoring the invisible people. The invisible people being the people who serve us and do good for us day after day, but whose presence and service we often fail to register or acknowledge. The invisible people are the bus drivers, the lift attendants, the auntie in the office keeping the place clean, and the domestic helpers. We have films on our website giving honor to the SMRT technician, ex-prisoners, the undertaker, our first woman Olympians, nurses, firemen, a family with a member who has Down syndrome, and many more. So let me show you just an example with a film entitled Aya, which features an SMRT technician who is dedicated to his duties, but whose daughter at first misunderstood him as not appreciating her efforts for his birthday. You can find the film on the Honor Singapore website also. Para pendengar sekalian, anda bersama saya DJ Faris pada hari Minggu yang indah ini. Langit kelihatan biru saja dan saya berharap para pendengar semua bergembira selalu. Assalamualaikum. Eh, ada balik. Kamu patolong. 
Wah, banyak makanan. Ayah ni kerja hal? Okey. Okey, macam biasa je. Memang yang penat sikit je. Untuk ayah. Eh? Ayah macam ni anak ayah Mana ada buat IT je. Mesti ada apa-apa tau. Tak, nak buat special-special je. Hmm. Kenapa? Tak sedap eh? Manis. Macam ada ayah juga. Ayah ni macam tau ayah ni. Habis-habis <laughs> Hikmat MRT laluan utara selatan di antara stesen Yishun dan Yochukang sedang terjejas. Pihak SMRT sedang bekerja keras untuk meneruskan hikmat kereta api. Harap maklum. Saya cakaplah ya sibuk ke apa. Tak boleh ke? Bukannya hari-hari Farah masak macam gini pun. Farah kena faham. Ini tugas ayah. Ayah kena selamatkan diorang semua. Diorang semua sekarang stuck dekat stesen. Farah tahu diorang semua ada family kan? Family? Habis kita bukan family ayah? Please lah Farah. Farah jangan macam ini. Ini tugas ayah. Ayah kena pergi juga. Eh? Farah. Attention all passengers. Due to a train fault, this train is unable to proceed further. That's why I prefer cycling. Huh? Exercise, get fit, bicep. Huh? Ayah, you want to get fit so much, then you must walk so hard. Also, reach there faster. You think what? BMT work much? Ah? No lah. Later, I miss my family dinner. Leh. My father just come out from hospital. Father's boy, is it? No lah. Just, just miss him. Ayah, ah, yeah, let's walk, walk, walk. Awak lah, awak lah. Oh. Oh, tak, oh, tak. Hey, stand by. Ya, proceed, proceed. Sorry, sorry. Okay, proceed. 
Sorry, sir. Sorry for the delay. Sorry, sir. Thank you very much. Ya, saya minta maaf. I'm so proud of you. Ayah pun sayang pada juga. Ya, satu sudah kacau. Ya, kick dua ada lagi tak? Ada lah, tapi jangan kat pasti agaknya. Okey, kick. Just to assure you, the film was chosen before yesterday. <laughs> well, if we open our eyes and our hearts to the world around us each day, we can see a lot that is worthy of our honor, our care, and our support. Someone described a situation in Japan where at the end of lunch, he was asked if he would like to have coffee. Yes, he would like to have coffee, but he found that all his Japanese friends at lunch decided not to. His friends later explained to him that they had noticed that other people were waiting for the tables to clear so that they in turn could have their lunch. So his friends decided the right thing to do was to release their table as quickly as possible, thus declining coffee. Another person was telling me about his experience in climbing the Sydney Harbour Bridge with a group that included several Japanese. At the end of the climbs, everyone was given a towel to wipe off their sweat. But he saw that the Japanese also used their towel to wipe the safety gear the group had been equipped with. They were doing it in consideration of the next group who would be making the climb. I remember flying to Tokyo and being picked up by a chauffeur arranged by my sponsors in Japan. After helping me to get to the car park with my luggage, he told me to wait at the curbside and proceeded to run to the car. This was his expression of considerate service, running to the car. I also recall taking a walk in the Japanese countryside. Every child and every adult I came across really greeted me, konnichiwa, the Japanese informal greeting for hello. They would not have known that I was not Japanese, but the earnestness and spontaneity with which they said hello was spirit lifting. Allow me just one more example from Japan. A friend told me that his wife made a point of sweeping the road in front of their home with the help of her children. He assured me that this was not unusual. It was simply doing something they had grown up with, looking after the neighborhood and helping to maintain a clean environment. I apologize that all my examples came from Japan. I think Japanese culture nurtured in children from young fosters social consideration and responsibility uh, looking out for others. I quote Japan not to urge everyone to become Japanese cultural clones, but to show that it is possible to have a social environment where people feel a sense of being recognized and being treated with respect and consideration. 
These are the little day-to-day -day things that we all can do if we look beyond our own immediate needs and actually notice others and their needs. We can learn to see anew and act, and we can get to be a gracious society if we think it important enough. Singapore has had a courtesy campaign in the past, which has since been absorbed into the Singapore Kindness Movement. Can we do more? Should we do more? Can we get to being a gracious society faster? Caring about others and doing good is basically a matter of the heart. This is not about religion. It is about beliefs and values and morals and ethics which may come from religion or a personal study of civilization and culture or simply the way we have been brought up. Indeed, our disappointment and frustration are particularly great with those who claim to be religious but do not live up to their religious precepts of caring and doing good. All religions teach virtually the same social mores of good and right, but there are many atheists and agnostics who practice the same standards out of the goodness of their hearts or something deep within them in their consciences, which tell them what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. The Chinese have a saying, like, this, which means at the age of three, you can know what one will be like for the rest of his life. I know for many of you, your children are way beyond three, so you feel some desperation. <laughs> but it's okay, you know, we can always be better than what we are. But that's the point. At the age of three, you can know what one will be like for the rest of his life. What a remarkable statement drawn from thousands of years of Chinese civilization. Three years old, is before the kid even turns up in nursery, not to mention kindergarten or primary one. The lesson is plain. Parents and the child's earliest environment hold a key to the behaviors the child will display towards others as they grow up and their attitude towards life and work in adulthood. Speaking to teachers of children in the lower primary levels, I found that many of them feel that what they are having to do, often with only limited success, is to undo the damage parents had caused at home from what they had done or failed to do. If three years old seems much too young for you, you could take comfort from a saying by the Jesuits and order of the Catholic Church. They say, give me a child to seven and I will give you the man. In other words, they believe that a child can be molded for life within seven years. Whether we decide to take the word of the Chinese, of old, or the Jesuits, the point simply is that parents and the family have the most fundamental of responsibilities in guiding and shaping the child before they get to kindergarten or school. I'm speaking here of values and attitudes which are more often caught by example than taught by instruction in our youth. So, where have we got to, starting from club? His study of the fate of empires indicated that the push for affluence brought economic wealth and political power to nations, but affluence subsequently catalyzed the nation's decadence and decline. What we would like to explore is whether Singapore could think of a way to ameliorate the weakening of the nation and inspire a new pioneering spirit for growth and well-being. Singaporeans seem to agree that we want a gracious society, but developing a whole culture and value system starts from the home, reinforced by school and society. It may well take a generation, and we have to start now. 
building upon what has been done in the past, but moving in a far more deliberate, urgent, and holistic manner. Are we merely promoting naive altruism when we suggest that Singaporeans think and care about others? Far from it. I think it can in fact be more like enlightened self-interest. Let me explain. I'm sure most of you would have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When I ask my audiences, you know, when I give various talks and so forth, I ask my audiences how many needs there are in Maslow's hierarchy, I get responses like five or six or seven, people are not sure. Often, but when I ask them what is the highest need identified by Maslow, everyone knows it is self-actualization. Everyone. So everybody can remember that because that is all about yourself, whether it's four, five, six, doesn't matter. <laughs> we can all remember what is most important to ourselves. Well, Maslow was an American psychologist who hypothesized that the needs of human beings lie in a hierarchy where once one level of needs is met, the next higher level of needs gains prominence. So he identified five levels of needs. First, the biological and physiological needs about food, air, water, shelter, and so forth. Then next is safety needs, about security, stability, law. Then belongingness and love needs. For example, family, friends, we all need this sense of being loved by someone. Next is esteem needs. For example, status, reputation, achievement. We all have this need to be looked up to or respected by others. And finally, according to Maslow, self-actualization needs, which is the realization of our potential. However, further research in the field concluded that Maslow's list is incomplete. So I'm sorry for those of you who believe that you've got there or, or answered everything. It's not good enough, right? Because further research shows that human beings have three more needs. They are cognitive needs, a need to understand. And this is why so many of us get annoyed if we're just told to do things without knowing why we are being asked to do it. So we have cognitive needs. Next, we have aesthetic needs, a need for beauty, for balance, for form in life. And finally, there's transcendence needs, a need to look beyond ourselves to help others realize their potential. It turns out that the highest need we all have is the need for transcendence. That is the need to move beyond just thinking of ourselves to thinking of others and helping them reach their personal growth and self-fulfillment. Transcendence is ranked as the highest of all needs in the human psyche. To put it simply, if we want to live a full life, we have to remember that it is not about ourselves, but about others. Sure, not everyone would agree with Maslow's five needs or this extended list of eight. But I believe that most of us derive an enormous sense of satisfaction and fulfillment when we do something good for someone else, enjoying their gratitude and having the smile in their eyes warm our hearts. Serving beyond ourselves is what gives each of us meaning and a deep sense of purpose in life and achievement. But a gracious society is not just about giving. It is not about giving until it hurts. Certainly, it is not naively dealing with people who say give and take but who really mean you give, I take. <laughs> For giving to be possible, there must also be a receiver. A receiver. Right? And sometimes we need to be the receiver so that someone can give. I have a friend older than me who tells me that often when he rides the MRT, some youngster would offer 
his or her seat. He used to turn down the offer, saying he only needed to go a short distance and therefore could stand. And the youngster often looked embarrassed that his or her offer had been turned down. One day, my friend had an epiphany. From then on, he accepted the offer of a seat even when he only had one station to go. His humility means giving the youngster his good deed and happiness for the day. So my friend has come up with an aphorism. When you are young, you give happiness by giving with good grace and humility. When old, you give happiness by, accept, by accepting with good grace and humility. So that's the difference between young and old. Right? <laughs> I've spoken much about gracious society. Let me go back to the other items on the list that came out from my meeting with the young Singaporeans last year. And you look at the list again. Number two was beyond academics to focus on character and passion, then active aging to focus on the 30s and 40s physical and mental health, then going beyond geographic advantage to focus on innovation and e-commerce. And finally, number five, more sensitive and tolerant people focus on values. The last item, more sensitive and tolerant people, links back to gracious society. The third item, beyond geographic, uh, the fourth item, um, beyond geographic advantage, I will address in my next lecture. Active aging is partly related to demographics, which I will take up in my next lecture, and partly related to social and personal well-being, which all of us should take to heart in a gracious society. I shall now discuss the item beyond academics, a focus on character and passion. Character establishes the trustworthiness of the individual. We all know how critical character is in life and work. That is how we choose our friends. Can we trust them with our secrets and to look out for us? Actually, this is also how we choose who to promote in the workplace. Can we trust them to always do their best and act in the interest of the organization? Universities and schools see much of their role as sharing knowledge and developing skills rather than guiding their students towards succeeding in work and life. But those of us who lead organizations know what we look for when we recruit or promote people is not just competence and experience, but also trustworthiness and dependability. If we ask, will they do their best according to their talents and capabilities? Will they observe deadlines and let us know if they will not be able to meet the deadlines? We also wonder whether our people will cooperate, collaborate, and support each other. Can we trust our people in their attitude towards their work? Will they look out for each other and function as family or as a team? Universities and schools often fail to make the point with their students that to succeed in work and life, they need to be trustworthy and not just competent in their skills and abilities. Trust is the most important currency for long-term relationships. We all know this instinctively. Trust is both critical and essential in relationship with parents and family, friends and colleagues, subordinates and bosses, business partners and customers, and with government and the community. Next, the point about passion. As for passion in all competition, the person or organization with the most energy and imagination always wins. The person with the most energy and imagination always wins. This demands passion, a total commitment to the cause. The Singapore of the future needs to pay a lot more attention to the drive and determination of individuals. We need to value character and passion, soul and spirit, beyond academic results and skills certificates. 
But in addition to character and passion, there is the need for maximal development of the talents and abilities of individual Singaporeans. Unlike gracious society, where the government should facilitate but cannot deliver, because the quality of relationships between citizens can only be delivered by individual citizens, this is something for the government to do with the support of parents and the active involvement of individuals themselves. The government bears primary responsibility for the maximal development of the talents and abilities of individual, Singapore, uh, of individual Singaporeans, but this has been done with the support of parents and the active involvement, of course, of the individuals. The government should seek to create an environment where every Singaporean has maximum opportunity to be what they can be according to their talents and abilities. The greater attention to early childhood education is a critical move in this direction. The whole education system should be targeted at identifying and developing the talents and abilities of every Singaporean, while the work and social environment should provide the most supportive conditions for this. Parents are a critical part of such a national exercise because they are the ones who shape the character and the attitudes of the child before the child even turns up in kindergarten. But the critical actor is each individual. Their sense of honouring their individual talents and abilities and contributing in a way that reflects responsibility towards self, family and nation. But there is a fundamental change in our attitude that needs to happen for this to be possible. We must stop focusing on shortcomings and weaknesses and instead focus on strengths and abilities. Stop looking at people as handicapped or imperfect. Look instead for what they can do well. The autistic, the dyslexic, the polio victim and the person with one hand or foot. We have to support and help each seek to discover what they are able to do. Stop thinking in terms of disabilities and start thinking of people who possess different abilities, different abilities. This demands a different perspective on the part of parents, teachers, employers, society and government. They and we are not burdens to bear or problems to solve, but possibilities we have to discover. It is an integral part of being a gracious society. The fourth generation would hopefully have much to celebrate at SG100. But we cannot simply leave it to them to make the Singapore of their time for themselves. Certainly, many things they can and should do for themselves. Each generation must solve its own problems. But some things require the work of a generation or more to bring about. For these, we must start work on for these we must start work on now to be in time for that future. A gracious society is such a thing. It would be a society that makes Singapore stand out from the rest of the world. It would be a Singapore that draws out and benefits from what David Halpern has identified as the hidden wealth of nations. A gracious society, because of its spirit of other-centeredness, can help to induce better relationships among people and the different sectors of society, including organisations and the government. There is scope for the public sector to exercise greater sensitivity towards the people in its communications. Similarly, there can be greater attention to employee engagement in businesses and organisations, better service to customers, and greater instinctive concern for issues like income and socio-economic divides. Our highly educated Gen X 
than the Gen Y, the Millennials, and the incoming Gen Z, the Centennials, all offer us much hope. Every generation ultimately seeks meaning and purpose. Our youths are no different. They want to do good, but also need their own space and the scope in society. The bosses at work and parents and mentors can do more to support and encourage our youths on their life's work and journey. A gracious society is one where people feel good because others care, where we flourish together because we each can be the best we can be by helping ourselves and helping one another. We can start today to build a first world society that our fourth generation will be proud of and benefit from because we have moved in our generation to lay the groundwork for them to flourish and prosper 50 years later. By that time, and hopefully earlier, whenever any Singaporean or Singapore resident thinks of SG, Singapore, they will also think GS, Gracious Society. Thank you. Thank you for the great speech. Um, I'm not sure if I'm here facilitating this because I'm supposed to be the younger generation <laughs> representing some kind of voice. Uh, my first reactions to this is, um, I guess first when uh, I caught myself thinking, how old will I actually be at SG100, right? So I just turned 40 uh, last week. My daughter just turned three last week. So that would make me 88 years old, and she would be 51. So that's quite, um, so it made me reflect like uh, on two big things that you brought up. Um, first, there was a strong theme of graciousness and what is a gracious society, right? Um, grace, uh, grace seems to make me think of something that is freely given, it's unmerited, and it's particularly uh, striking when it's extended to the powerless from someone who is powerful. Um, and you talked about, uh, talked about how uh, it's, the, it's the role and responsibility of the citizen to build up this culture of care and concern, and the government can only facilitate uh, and not do anything else. So actually one of the questions I wanted to pose is, um, is that the, it, it, it's what exactly does it mean for the government to facilitate a culture of grace then? Um, is it possible for policy, for example, to be written in a way that facilitates or models grace and graciousness? Or do you believe that it can't be done? No, for example, like now you have, you have developments by the HDB. I mean, they're building the new estates in a way that, that uh, facilitates people interacting with each other. Mm. They're creating more in terms of common space. But you can easily have people coming together and each one just going to their own stall or their own shop to do their own thing and then just go back. Um, so I'm saying the quality of the relationship, I, I, I think the government can, in terms of policy, in terms especially uh, of physical space, um, 
create the conditions to allow this. It's just like uh, People's Association now has this movie bus that goes along and, and shows these movies in community centers and so forth, right? Mm. Um, uh, but there's a difference between saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, it needs even the People's Association to create that, and people come, they enjoy the movies. But the question is, um, of course, if you ask them, they say they enjoy themselves. Right? But the question is, how, how does it come more naturally about the way people interact with each other? I would imagine uh, that there would be instances where, um, uh, where in fact, it is, it is an effect of urbanization, that, that when, people, when people are physically made to live closer to each other, actually socially, they are drawn further apart. And there could be parents who tell their children not to mix with the kids around, not to mix with neighbor's kids in case you end up quarreling. The intention, of course, is good that, you know, the less interaction we have, the less chances that we end up quarreling. But the fact of the matter, though, is that the less interaction you have, the more the chance that any quarrel you might end up with becomes a really big quarrel, simply because of misunderstanding um, uh, and inadequate understanding of each other. So, so, so my point fundamentally is about, yes, the government can facilitate, and if the government were to agree that gracious society is that kind of, you know, it's, you can say social Greece is a kind of uh, social competitive advantage. You know, people talk about social capital, right? Social capital on a national basis, not just social capital you want to try to do in terms of small communities. If the government agrees with that, then it's really about saying each time you think of a policy, are you helping to bring? Uh, are you are you sort of um, you know, helping to reinforce, or are you detracting from it? Hmm. So we must first agree that that's what we want, um, because we don't agree first that that's what we want and that's what is important for Singapore going forward. Then you're never going to do this. But if we agree, then then you find this all the whole way, whether it is government or the business or any organization or the family going down to the individual that you find is running through and each action will just reinforce mm. the other. Mm. But I agree with you, your first point, which is whether we are prepared to be the initiator. I think there are very often people sort of say, well, if my neighbor is kind to me, I'll be kind to them, but they need to be kind to me first. Well, your neighbor mm. is saying exactly the same thing, which is why it doesn't start. So it's true, when you say grace means it's something you offer, indeed, this is why it comes to a responsibility of each one. In mm. fun, I, yeah. I would imagine that one of the pushbacks to the, to, to the statement of the government can only facilitate, but it can't produce it. Right. Um, some critics pushback would be, um, how can the government then model grace to its people, or model grace to its citizenry? Um, I tell you my feeling about this, mm. that if we, if we bring the idea of gracious society as a, let's say, part of our national culture, uh, a more na natural thinking about the other, I think the public servants are going to be more thinking about the people that they are serving. Mm. They're going to be more thinking and taking more, more um, uh, sort of say, uh, let's say more, more initiative in terms of doing more than just saying you fill up the form or I take the form. Mm. So I think if as a people we become oriented that way, I believe it will have its effect in the way that government policies are developed, in the way that government services are delivered, uh, in the way that people are just looking out for each other. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll throw out one more question and then I'm yeah. going to like give it to the floor. Um, so uh, you associated the culture of graciousness with the kampong spirit, right? So, so one of the pushbacks that we normally hear from, from young people is that when they hear the term kampong spirit, it means nothing to them because kampong just has no emotional resonance. So uh, do you feel that when you, when you experience the, the younger generation today, um, do you see that the kampong spirit is dead in this generation or do you think it's simply different? Well, the only reason I use the term kampong spirit is because uh, you know so many people are using it. So I rather suspect how the people who use the term kampong spirit don't know what it, a kampong is <laughs> anyway. Right. Um, but what about young people? Mm. No, I believe in many ways. Yeah, young people, you know, if I look at young people, young people are looking for, uh, in many instances, looking for companionship. They are looking for good fun with each other, uh, and therefore you can say, uh, yes, you know. You know, living with each other and 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 and, um, and being together in the community is very important. Young people, especially when families have become smaller, this has become even more important for those who taste it, for those who taste what it's like to have close friends and what it's like to be doing things together. Uh, but what is possibly a bit missing in my observation is young people taking the initiative to sort of say, let's let's do this rather than wait for it to be done to me first and then I will I will respond to it no but if you if you tell me I, I think for young people I I'm, I'm very optimistic about it and in particular because I think this is really a need for their lives mm. which for many of them they may not have recognized themselves that's mm. why I talk about Meslau's hierarchy going up to the mm eight levels and a level of transcendence. Okay. Hmm. Well, um, so I, I, I see people have eagerly stepped up to the mic. Um, could you state your name and where you come from? Uh, okay, yeah, me. Both of you first. So yes. someone else behind me. Oh. Okay. <laughs> no. uh, greetings to both of you. And I'm very happy to be here. I'm, a, I'm Lawson Lau. I'm a fresh graduate in international relations. So there's some questions left over from uh, last lecture and there are some new questions I have. Altogether, three questions. Okay, so the first is... I, I, like I, I think you have to give opportunity to other people. So just choose the most important of okay, the three questions. Okay, I'll finish it in uh, two fair. minutes, two minutes. <laughs> Give me two minutes, two minutes. Okay, the first is our political system. So uh, I think that the US Constitution is an exceptional piece of document with principle and ideals that are wise and timeless. And I think it has proven to be respected and the leader's actions are shaped or constrained or restricted by it. So uh, it's a timeless piece of document which I find that has served America well. So what are your thoughts in terms of Singapore going towards constitutionalism rather than the current model of parliamentary supremacy? And the second question, our, our education system. In late September, DPM Mr. Tarman spoke about reforms in our education system and these reforms, he clearly and objectively highlighted that it is the admission systems that, that needs critical reforms. And many young people are actually going overseas to study or, like in my case, can't afford to go overseas, do distance learning, or in some other people's cases, totally give up on university education. So what are your thoughts in terms of legislating, legislating opportunities? And third, this is a little bit long, but I think it's relevant in this lecture. It's the soul of Singapore. Before Mr. George Hill left the cabinet, he spoke about the struggle for Singapore's soul. And I'll read a very short part of what he said. 
Dear Singaporeans, this has been a struggle for the soul of Singapore. We need a bigger heart to embrace all Singaporeans. This has to be a unity, a unity based on greater diversity. At the heart of the government is a PAP, but we need a PAP that will listen and listen carefully. A PAP that talks with and not at. A PAP that is not perceived as arrogant or high-handed. We need a transformed PAP. So what are your thoughts? How do you think Singapore is faring and what other areas can we actually improve in? That's quite a lot to answer. I kept my promise, okay. two minutes. <laughs> I have to try to answer in two minutes. But anyway, for your last question on George Yeo, I agree completely with everything he says. And at the end of the day, you ask me what are my thoughts about how Singapore is faring. Quite frankly, my thought is an irrelevant point. Um, because if I express my thought and you agree with me, then that's fine. If I express my thought and disagree with me, I accept, I accept the fact that uh, you know, your, 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 your thoughts and your judgment is as valid as mine. Uh, and so that's an irrelevant point. The relevant point is what are we expecting in terms of uh, what in our mind is good government and is the current government delivering on good government? That, that is a critical question. Every Singaporean is going to make his own judgment about it. Um, so I think what, what Giorgio mentions um, is, is all very relevant and in a way his message is for the PAP itself and uh, that, that's really for the PAP to decide how much, of, uh, how much of it they want to take up. But at the end of the day, I, I think we have to look and ask ourselves, what is the job of government? Uh, in my simplistic way of thinking, I think the job of government is to take on to do the things which individual citizens cannot do. I, I, I think we need to recognize that, uh, that, that we ought to give individual citizens as much freedom as we possibly can, but there are things which the individual citizen cannot deliver on his own, and so he needs to contract it to a body that can take on these bigger functions, like running an armed forces or running the police force, maintaining order in the streets. I mean, these are things which the individual citizen cannot do without creating a whole lot of disorder. So once we decide on that, then we say that, okay, you know, so, so where, does, uh, where does the individual freedom need to take into account the fact that uh, that uh, you, should, you cannot or you should not be allowed to exercise your freedom in a way that impinges on the rights of your neighbor to similarly exercise his freedom. Uh, it's a fine judgment. And uh, it's fine judgment, so governments sometimes get it right, sometimes get it wrong, and at the end of the day, the people also have the opportunity to say uh, what, 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 what they think is uh, the government has done well and what the government has done not so well. Uh, I think the right of the social media, you know, once upon a time, uh, it is that people have the ability to exercise their views perhaps only once in five years when they go for the general elections in the polls. Now, now they can express their views within five seconds uh, through social media. And in fact, the big challenge about social media, uh, I mean, people welcome social media by saying social media is the mechanism by which you can speak truth to power. But now, as I said, the big challenge that we have is how to speak truth to social media. Because there's so much in terms of fake news and all kinds of things that are created that, that this becomes a big challenge on its own. But, but I won't deny uh, the point that social media is indeed a mechanism by which you speak truth to power and by which you offer, offer um, uh, your feedback. So if I go back to your first question about the US system and so forth, may I just say this? Uh, I think there's no other country in the world in the same condition as us. And at the end of the day, we have to exercise our own judgment 
as to what makes the most sense for the way we are. Um, uh, rather than just say, you know, look at the US system, I mean, they, they got, uh, maybe there's a system that can run for a big country. It's a system where, where as you say, there's uh, constitutionality, there's all these uh, checks and balances. And just remember, checks and balances also mean that you have a system where you cannot change anything. Um, uh, and, and very clearly, right, in the US economy, you can run a market economy where you can say competition, by and large, can get proper pricing done and so forth. In many instances in Singapore, it cannot be done, simply because the size of our economy is a totally different one. And by definition, therefore, you need government to come in and do a lot more by way of regulation than you would do in a big economy where, where competitors can check on each other. So, so, so that's my response to you with regard to the political system. I think at the end of the day, each country has to decide for itself, and you may have a view that uh, moving away from what we have is a great idea, then you have to think in terms of, so what, what do you gain and what do you lose by changing from where we are? Of course, we must be open all the time to change and to change in an urgent kind of way where the things need to be changed in an urgent kind of way. Um, but I think um, just looking at what other people are doing and say, let's do the same as us, I, I think that's a very, I, I, I think that's a very dangerous way of thinking about it. As Singapore, we ought to learn from everywhere in the world, but we have to think for ourselves. Um, your, your next point about education system, um, about, uh, about uh, uh, legislating opportunities and so forth, at the end of the day, I think you have to keep looking for it. I mentioned in my speech to say, I believe that the government must have a frame of mind which says that we want to develop the talents and abilities of every Singaporean rather than look at people, you know, people with disability and so so say that is a problem. No, I don't think we should look at it in terms of that is a problem, but say, oh, say okay, that, that, is, uh, that is something that I have to try to discover. What, what can we do in this regard? We wouldn't be able to talk this way if we were not reasonably affluent as we are, to be quite frank. I mean, so we are making progress, but, but I, I, I think let's recognize that some of these do require interventions that cost money and so forth. So let's not, let's not sort of miss the point that we can talk this way only because we have, um, uh, because the country has a reasonable level of, uh, um, you know, a reasonable level of quality of life and reasonable level of affluence. Otherwise, we can't even talk this way. So as these possibilities arise, then I say, okay, let, let's look at this, but let's get our principles right. And to me, I'd like to see the principles as, um, the government working with parents should look to try to help every Singaporean develop their talents and abilities to the best extent possible. And after that, to sort of say, now that we've helped you be the best that you can be, it's really up to you, you know? What are you going to contribute for your own life? And we hope also, you think in terms of what can you contribute to the nation the best way that you can. Yes, Mr. Lim, could I make a comment on education? Just a real case study being myself. So what happened for me was I came from N-Levels, I went to IT, I went to Thomasic Poly, eventually I did an external degree with the University of London. So for me, what shocked me about the system was I met Mr. Daryl David back then. He was the uh, course manager for media, uh, media management, communications and media management at Thomasic Poly. I asked him, like, and he saw my credentials, I was actually top of my cohort for ITE. So I was very happy, but I didn't get institutional support from ITE. 
And I went, I went to Thomasic Poly, I said, Mr. David, you know, I'm very bad at my math, but I'm good with qualitative areas of thinking and, and doing stuff. So I said, quantitative is not, not my forte. So I said, could you help me, either humanities or media or communications? So what Mr. David told me was, we have a policy that all ITE graduates, you're not, not really allowed to actually apply for such courses. And in fact, for me, I was given a list of courses I could apply for, and the only courses I could actually apply for engineering quantitative courses. So I had to choose among all the quantitative subjects, I had to choose something that was middle ground. So I chose a diploma in business. So I hope that, I think from this empirical evidence that I gave, I really hope that the reforms will be very deep. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, Wish you the best. You. Just want to say that, uh, okay, in my next, in my next lecture, I'm, I'm going to talk in terms of if if we don't know what the next 10 years is going to be like, how do you prepare our people for it? And even there, we need to begin to adjust our thinking, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, like you talk about innovation, right? Um, we have to move away from this idea about if you want to be innovative, you cannot be saying, I only recognize people when they have got the gold medal. You are going to have to say that I have to, take, I have to put a lot more emphasis on effort, on whether people have tried their best, and, and and at the end of the day, I, I think in, in the future, a lot more is going to depend on a person's attitude, a person's motivation, a person's imagination, rather than simply saying, um, you know, if I, if I knew these things, that is the end point I'll get to. I think going to the future, is, that is going to be a lot more difficult. Uh, the responsibility each one of us really has is what can I do with the talents and abilities that I have? And you are going to win if you have a greater motivation and a greater capacity for hard work than the person who doesn't have it. I hope that's changed yeah. because I have to go a very long way okay. to prove a point. Uh, so <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Thank I have you. to go a very, very long way instead yeah. of the proper university. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. Um. Thank, you. Thank you, Mr. Lim. Um, Alvin Fu here from ExxonMobil. I have a million dollar question for you, and it has to do with MRTs. So uh, during lunchtime, I just had a privilege of having a chat with our male engineers at the, at the uh, office, ExxonMobil. A lot of engineers there. So guess what they were talking about? How to fix the public transport system. So they, they had a whole list of uh, solutions, which I will not waste time elaborating here. Um, probably LTA has better solutions. Um, but they figured it's more than just an engineering problem. It's probably a policy problem as well. So um, my question to you is, what? how do we build a transport system that's SG100 ready and and in a gracious in a gracious way in a ungracious society <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I left my engineering more than 50 years ago so <laughs> 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 so that I have to leave with the technical people my, my 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 own sense of it is more like you say you got a group of engineers who have discussed about it and we have to talk talk more in terms of how can you get your ideas through how can you get and not necessarily that uh, it's not necessarily that every idea we put through has to be taken up, but the question is, how can we get our ideas through so that the people who are in charge of this have seriously looked through and see what they can learn from it? That's the point. And I would say, seems to me, that's what you and your colleagues ought to try to do, to get, to, to get your ideas through. And, and uh, uh, as I said, when we become society increasingly where we all have concerns for the nation, um, and what we want is citizens who participate in 
how to make life better and how to make the country stronger. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and, and in that context, while each of us can have our views, I think we have to bear in mind uh, that the views all sit within a whole system. And we also have to bear in mind that the business of government is really a complex one. But what we need to be assured is that our effort at putting our ideas through with a desire to improve things has had proper attention given. As I said, to, to me, I think our attitude should be, as a government and as a people, we should just be learning from everything and everywhere. And if there are other people who are thinking about it, why not I take, I take advantage of their thinking? So the citizens ought to be more willing to be offering their views rather than on the basis of, see, I'm the smart guy who offered my view. If not for me, the government wouldn't know what to do. But more in terms of this is, a, this is an effort of everyone. Uh, so if we can be more focused on the idea itself on how to improve things, and we put that forward, and we keep making a noise until we are satisfied that people have looked through it and thought about it. And if possible, to keep knocking on, the, uh, banging the desk and knocking on the door until we get a reasonable explanation as to why our ideas were not taken up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's good. The starting point is to have those ideas in the first place. So I'm really very glad to hear that you've got your group of engineers and all that who really are keen to want to do something about it. Uh, we have a few questions from the overflow room. So I'll, I'll give you two which are quite related. Uh, so the first is from uh, Wong Shiyin of Dunman High School. Um, and she says, uh, in 2013, kindness mascot singer quit, stating that he was too tired to continue facing an increasingly angry uh, and disagreeable society. Uh, so what does this say about the state of graciousness in, so in Singapore? <laughs> and the second question is from someone older, right? Uh, Rahul from the Ministry of Home Affairs. And he's asking, so what is holding us back from being gracious and what can we do to overcome these hurdles? Well, you may consider my, my, my answer too simplistic, but that is to say, we are talking of a cultural change. In my view, I think we are talking of a change within a generation. I, um, and, and therefore, let's say, if you start on this journey, I think it will take us 30 years, may take us 40 years. I hope it take us 30 years. And this is why when I mentioned about, uh, about parents, sort of say, how parents do things is going to affect their children. Well, it's nice if I can expect the parents to be changing their whole way in which they bring up children, okay? But, but put it this way, you know, more realistically, I'd rather address the, 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 the Gen Ys and the upcoming Gen Z to sort of say, if you believe a gracious society is what we want, then let's just practice, let's, let's practice it, practice it in the way that we treat each other. I, I mean, these are little things. I can tell you that when I walk to the office, if I know there are people behind me, I'll open the door, I'll hold the door. But you know how few people say thank you? <laughs> but that doesn't matter to me. Okay. But this is something we can do. I know. I take the shuttle buses every so often. Have you ever noticed how many people actually say thank you to the best bus driver? I mean, these are things we can practice. So what I'm saying to all the young people and all that, we say, in many ways, our hopes, our hopes are with you, um, we, we should hope very much that of course the schools do work very hard at teaching good manners and so forth to the kids, um, but we should hope very hard that, that therefore when they go back, 
their grandparents don't teach them differently or their parents don't teach them differently. Yeah, but it is a whole national effort recognizing that many of us are waiting for somebody else to start before we do. Because we don't like to be the smart guy around the place, you know, so wait to see other people, other people do it first. Recognizing that, I think then the, the, um, the, the challenge is for all of us to say that, that if we believe this enough, let's start, let's start doing it, you know. Um, and, and be the gracious person rather than look at it in terms of this is a tit for tat thing, so I wait for the tit to come first, right? Uh, so I say, you know, do what we can and, and maybe in 30 years you'll see the big difference. This is fundamentally my point. I do think this is a generational change and I do think therefore that this is something we cannot wait for the fourth generation, we cannot wait for the generation of SG100 to figure this out for themselves. Because even if they figure it out as SG100 that this is what they want to do, they will have to wait for SG150 to see the full results of it. So if we, if we are looking out for SG100, we have to start doing it now. For those of us who are here, how do you prepare the way so that people will not feel awkward about, about um, behaving well? You know, you have a funny situation. Some people feel awkward about behaving well because their friends don't like them to be shown up. Well, you know, you need to create a whole culture in Singapore where people feel, feel awkward about not behaving well. Yes, uh, question. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, more of some comments rather than questions. But uh, uh, my name is Teng Siu Ngo. I'm speaking on behalf or in my capacity as the Honorary Secretary of the Disabled People's Association. I thank Mr. Lim for speaking up for these people. I thank Mr. Lim also for speaking up for people with uh, the so-called invisible people. I like to speak up for people with invisible disabilities because we represent them as well. Uh, too often we have people uh, officially in charge of this sector not being totally aware of some of the, not so much the terminologies, but also the uh, the actual way of handling these people. For example, we have uh, in official websites, how do we relate to people who with autism throw tantrums? They are not tantrums, they are meltdowns, all right? Uh, we have our people in high official circles, uh, not knowing what is Asperger's syndrome, calling them asparagus problem, <laughs> or Asperger's, yeah, uh, making fun of the term. Uh, this is not acceptable. Uh, and uh, I would like to thank Mr. Lim for speaking up on behalf of our, you know, uh, early childhood needs. Uh, the infants or the young people with uh, special needs, they need early intervention programs. Uh, we need to strengthen that, uh, the EPIC programs for children with special needs. Right now, children with special needs are still left out of the fold of compulsory education. Uh, even though we are signatory to the UN Convention uh, of People you know, uh, with Rights with Disability. So uh, I think it's high time we review again this issue of compulsory education for them, provide more places, more resources if necessary, as you said, for people to develop everyone with different uh, abilities, uh, not just to become a tolerant people, to tolerate them, but to embrace our people with disabilities. And I'd like to put in a plug for our DPA, 
uh, we are more than pleased to organize workshops to raise disability awareness, to know what are, what are the correct terminologies when say wheelchair bound, they're wheelchair users. And please join us all uh, on the 28th of October for the Purple Parade, where we have people uh, with special needs displaying their different abilities. Thank you. If I could make just, uh, just two points in response to that. First, I think um, uh, very often when you talk in terms of the government, uh, the government should do more of this and government should do more of that. Actually, there are, whole, there are a million things that government, uh, that people wish for government to do more of this and more of that. At the end of the day, as I said, uh, I think the role of government is really how to maintain order and how to provide for the community in a way which the community cannot provide for itself. That's a job of government. So at the end of the day, it is a government reflecting the culture, reflecting the views of society, frankly. And this is why now, while you can say the government should do more of this, should do more of that, at the end of the day, the government is trying to reflect the best way by which they can serve the, the needs and the wishes of the society. So if society as a whole is looking for graciousness. Society as a whole is looking for everyone to be looked upon, not in terms of uh, you know, your problems or your difficulties, but look in terms of what are the strengths, what are your abilities, what can you do. If society as a whole begin to think like that, the government is also going to find itself thinking like that, simply because it's the job of government to reflect the way the society sets its priorities. So, so that's the point I want to make. I'm not saying the government shouldn't do more. All I'm saying is the way the government behaves is to do the best that they can to serve the needs and the hopes and the wishes of people. And therefore, we have to try to influence the way the whole society thinks. So your point about going out to educate the society so that they know better and so forth, that's a, that, that, that's a very good point. The other thing I want to say also, therefore, is that when we're talking about, um, let's say, how to deal with people with, with special needs and so forth, um, and that our language should not be one about rights and not about one of you owe us, but about one of how are we as a society, how are we, in uh, how are we as, as graciousness in society, how are we as human beings, and what is it to mean to be to be doing what is good and what is right. So, so, so that, that's the point I'm making. So, so that we don't, it's not a fight about who's, who shouts loudest or who, who has bigger rights, but it is really about the way society thinks about these things and the values that we hold as society, which is why my view is, uh, you know, we go back to the Gen Ys and we go back to the Gen Zs and sort of say, you know, how, how do we look at these things? and, and what do you think makes sense to us in the way that we that we run our lives? Mm. I know that's a big thing, and it is not the kind of thing which government on their own naturally would like to think of. You know, just like uh, just like many of us in the way that we run in our organisation, we like to have KPIs. We have to very specific targets and so forth. Yes, indeed, what I'm advocating here is it is cultural. It is soft transformation which is why the issue comes down to whether we all really feel it is important and whether we say that it will take us a generation. So it will take us a generation, that's why we must start now. If it takes us just five years, we can still defer it another five years. So 
so the question is our own internal convictions that has to move first. Um, we're also taking some questions from Facebook, and I have three questions here which are sort of linked, and it's all about graciousness again. Um, so, uh, so to get to a gracious society, we can we look at why we even became an ungracious one? Uh, do current public policies inhibit gracious behavior? And is graciousness compatible with the side effects of meritocracy and competitiveness? So it was three separate questions, but they're all around the same theme. Yeah, yeah okay. I, I, I suppose um, uh, the first point is about uh, how, how do we come to be like that? Hmm. Uh, my own thesis tends to be that urbanization tends to bring people like that. We are not unique in Singapore. I think all over the world you find exactly the same issues. In fact, I've just been reading a book written by uh, the founder of uh, Kyocera is a, a Japanese company and the remarkable thing about the book is he laments about Japanese society. People are getting more selfish and, and people are getting less gracious and so forth. So I wanted to say that this is, uh, this is by, no means, by no means unique to Singapore and if we can in fact achieve something like gracious society as part of our culture, this is going to make Singapore truly different from other places actually. It's not an easy thing to bring about, but urbanization has, in many ways, created a lot of this. The drive for people to look after themselves, because in a market economy, the sense about about competition and so forth. I mean, we can we can look at all these we can look at all these reasons, but then we have to come back to sort of say, what's important for each one of us, and what can we do, and what can we do about it? What do we do with our time? Uh, you know, this, this book written by, 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 by this man, uh, as I said, who's a founder of um, uh, Kyocera, he said that, uh, uh, he was making a remark about complaints for the company, and he says, if we have time to complain, it means we have time to do something about it. Um, well, you know, we may or may want to agree or may not want to agree about it, but fundamentally, this is this what the challenge is, is about. To, 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 to the question about meritocracy, is graciousness related to meritocracy? Um, I think we have to, uh, at the end of the day, again, how we conduct ourselves as a society is what you call, uh, fundamentally, it's about fairness, it's about honesty. In many ways, you hold the government up to its standards to say the government must act in a way which is fair, in a way which is honest, uh, in a way uh, which exhibits integrity. These are good values and these are good expectations that we ought to have about any government uh, that, that, that we vote for and any government that's running, that's running Singapore. So when you look at meritocracy, you see that meritocracy in its fundamentals is really about um, being, being as fair as we can possibly be in the way that, um, that we choose people for appointments. Um, but but meritocracy, uh, but meritocracy simply means uh, what degree you got in university or what grades you got in A levels and so forth. Then that's a totally un inadequate view of meritocracy. Meritocracy also has to be related to character. It has to be related to uh, to motivation. Uh, I think you know. Uh, if I can just give a quotation. Uh, D. Hawk, who's the founder chairman of Visa International, he he's retired now, but. But he said, for example, once he says, uh, you have to hire and promote people first, first on the basis of integrity, second on the basis of motivation, 
third on the basis of capacity, fourth on the basis, um, uh, a fourth on the basis of understanding, fifth on the basis of knowledge, and sixth on the basis of experience. He said knowledge and experience can easily be built up, um, be built up if you can if you select people um, based on first four qualities. What is that about? You're really saying. First and foremost, you look at people in terms of integrity. Second, he says, without uh, okay, the idea being that without integrity, motivation, motivation is misdirected. Okay, without motivation, capacity is wasted. In other words, you had the potential for doing it, but without motivation, you're just wasting your whole, your whole capacity. Um, then he says, without capacity, understanding is limited, because when your understanding is limited, you cannot be creating new stuff. Innovation is going to be limited. The extent to which you can produce stuff is limited, so so that's why you say you you need to have uh, you need to have understanding to back up capacity. Then is that and then then basically the idea is that without understanding, knowledge and uh, uh, knowledge becomes you know misused or, or underused. And he said without without knowledge, then experience doesn't build on on a particular base. You know I I, I can't remember the the full um, sort of. Um, rationale he gave to this. But the point I want to make is this. Therefore, when you talk meritocracy, actually, if we look at meritocracy purely in terms of school results, we're really getting a very, very limited view of meritocracy. At the end of the day, meritocracy has to take into account integrity and motivation and, uh, and uh, yes, capacity of people and so forth. Um, so we go back to, to the fundamentals about meritocracy. And I think there's, there's something in meritocracy which says this is as fair as we can possibly be. Yes, we can be unhappy and we can be questioning about the way the meritocracy is applied or is, um, is executed. But I think the principle of meritocracy itself, it seems to me, um, is, is as fair as we can possibly uh, get things done. Does graciousness clash with meritocracy? Well, at the end of the day, Graciousness is about the way we treat each other as human beings, what is right, what is fair, what is good. It, it, shouldn't, go, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't clash meritocracy at all, because at the end of the day, if we say meritocracy is the right way by which we acknowledge what people are capable of, uh, are capable of contributing <coughs> so that we can get the most in terms of their contribution to society, then, then, uh, then we shouldn't have the two as kind of a choice between graciousness and meritocracy. On the other hand, so let me close with this to say that, oh, for sure, the people who reach high levels, and if they do reach high levels because of meritocracy, I think upon them lies an even heavier responsibility for graciousness. Um, there's actually a, a last question about do current public policies inhibit gracious behavior? <laughs> well, uh, at the end of the day, you need to get, uh, and at the end of the day, you need to get very explicit about this and you sort of say, you, you know, what, what public policy is it which prevents you from being <coughs> gracious? Um, I find it because to me, because graciousness is a kind of, uh, you know, unless you're a public policy which says you are not allowed to say thank you and sorry. <laughs> uh, 
but other than that, you know, I, I find it difficult to think in terms of a public policy where you are uh, disallowed or, or it's, it just made it too difficult for you to, to be um, gracious. Um, but there's no doubt about it. For example, you know, uh, sometimes you may be organizing things in such a way that people begin to uh, behave in a way which is not fair, not right, not gracious to each other. And then we better do something better so that we don't, in our practice, induce people to be, to be um, ungracious to each other. Uh, so I've, 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 I've no doubt there will be occasions where you organize things in such a way that, uh, that, that, that uh, you, you give full opportunity to people who are ungracious to, um, to, to, to demonstrate their ungraciousness. Um, but I can't think of a policy that disallows you from being gracious. But maybe you can get more specific to it, right? <laughs> uh, I think there's a que question at the top. Yeah, I felt like I'm... Uh, uh, sorry, could we have your name and where you come Hen from? Henry Kwok, retired. I felt like I'm in detention class and I stand here for so long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have one observation and one sh to share what is Kampong spirit. And I'll lead on to that to, to the question. A kampong spirit, I have, I have the opportunity to stay in the Phuket Hosui where the triad runs the community, right? But we feel safe. We leave a door open knowing that nobody would dare to come in to our house and steal anything because there's this culture where we would call a moral society where I know, and the neighbors look after one another, right? And there's a, a lot of respects for each other because of what we do. I do for you, you do for me, no question asked, right? Now, I want to ask, can I throw, leading on to the last question, I want to throw the spender into work and ask, I know, I know that the government is supposed to facilitate a gracious society, and therefore should they not set a standard whereby they will respect the population and the wishes for a great society? So can this, what is preventing the government from being more gracious to the citizen? Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's the same question as for each one of us here. What prevents us from being gracious to one another? Um, okay, most instances uh, when you say what prevents us from being gracious to one another, I think a lot of times simply is we didn't think about it. It was just not in our minds. We are just not okay. sensitive to it. Um, so I, uh, th uh, could, so I think- I just interject right. so that not to waste time? Because it's, I think the government sets the tone in a certain way. So I think the government, while the citizens have our own responsibility, the government do have their own too. Yes, I agree. Anyway, you've had the air time to express your point to the government. I'm not the government, so this. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good that you've had the opportunity. Uh, but as I mentioned a bit earlier, my own feeling is that if 
if we make progress on this business of people being gracious to each other, even the people who serve in the government and the people who make policy in the government, they are going to be sensitized about it too. My name is Cherian, and I'm in the school system. Uh, I'm coming back again to the, the topic, uh, Can Singapore Fall? So um, in your first lecture, we talked about the stage that was set, you know, uh, gloves, the high noon, and when you come to the age of intellect, the decline starts. So at the same time, we know that uh, from the today, we know that we are able to start thinking, we are able to look at the finer things, or, you know, higher needs you know, in Maslow's, uh, because we have already reached a state of affluence. So now the, the, the question is, to maintain that state of affluence where we can look at the graciousness, we still have to maintain our competitive edge. So there seems to be a paradox where the drive for survival is also dependent on the ability to have maintain this affluence through competitiveness. But at the same time, we know that without that graciousness and the kampong spirit, the society still cannot hold. Uh, how, in your opinion, uh, could we sort of like balance this paradox? Uh, yeah, you have to come to my next lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I just a preview of what I want to talk about in my, my, uh, my last lecture is this, that I think if we go for a gracious society, it's not simply a matter of how can we prevent ourselves from blowing up, but I think it's a question about how can we make life so very special in Singapore. Okay, so my thesis is really about uh, can, we, can we kind of, uh, uh, not necessarily slow down, can we, can we limit the decline? Because as you know, under Glab's thesis, right, it's about uh, the chase for affluence is economic growth, and yet, the, and yet affluence is the catalyst for a social decline. So my, what I'm proposing down here is that gracious society is a way by which we can, we can mitigate that decline so that we don't fall down, as it were, and we don't have to go through all the consequences of our, whole decadence and so forth. What I want to talk in my next lecture is my thesis about how can we create a new S-curve. I believe, uh, in fact, I was asked in a newspaper interview, it says, I know the government has said that one to three percent is the new normal, do I agree? I say one to three percent economic growth is the new normal, I agree if we continue to do the same thing as in the past. But I believe that, and this is what I'll present in my next lecture, I believe that there's a way of thinking which can allow us to think in a different kind of way for the future. And so what I'm talking about there is whether in addition to working on how can I limit the, the, the decay or the decline after reaching high noon, can I also think of a way by which I create a new growth so that the net effect is actually a growth for the country. I, I, I'm going to present my views. I think it is. Uh, I, I, uh, I think there are ways of thinking for, for that kind of a future. But as I said, that's that's next time. You have to come. <laughs>
thank, thank you, Mr. Lim. So it, 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 my, my take home is it sounds like um, whatever change we want to see by the fourth generation, we have to move now, but we have to move at the speed of trust. And cultural change is going to take a botanically long, slow and invisible time. So we should all start now. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lim and Ms. Quick. Mr. Lim's third and final lecture for this series will be on 14th November. We hope to see you then. Good evening to all and thank you. <laughs>